Hello, everybody. Hopefully, you guys are all safe and sound and doing well at your homes. Before we start today's lesson on the Holocaust and go over some information on the PowerPoint slides and allow you guys then to do your work that you'll find on Google Classroom, I want to go over a couple of points that we need to uh, to talk about. Uh, number one, we got grades that are going to be submitted tomorrow, April 1st. Uh, those grades are going to be for the third quarter. And we've been instructed for third quarter grades that were to freeze your grades at what they were before. We ended up home because of the COVID outbreak. What I'm going to do here is that those of you that have submitted the work that you have submitted so far by when you're, you were at home or where you, uh, what you currently did the last couple of weeks, I will put those onto the quarter three exam because that's what you did do. For those students who have not completed the work, I will not add it to the quarter three, but it will show up as an incomplete or missing for quarter four. So please make sure, those of you that did not complete the assignments, please make sure you do that. It'll end up being weighed on your quarter four uh, grades. Talking about grades and then talking about students, number two point, we need to find our classmates. We have a lot of students who have gone completely MIA. I've con tried to contact them through email, through Reminds, through Google Classroom email, and I've only had about maybe close to 55% of you that have actually responded with some sort of work or completion of the uh, the classwork. So please make sure that you are logging in, you're going online, you're checking out what's on Google Classroom, making sure you're getting all that stuff done day by day. Number three, the packets. The ones you guys are currently working on that end with the appeasement section of World War II. You want to snap a picture of each of your pages from the front all the way to the back and email those to me potentially by Friday. I'd like to try to get those graded over the weekend and uh, have those ready to go for the beginning of quarter four. Um, next point, when will we be back in the classrooms? Good question. Don't know. Uh, the board is currently, they might be meeting actually right now in the morning, but um, they're going to be discussing when that date to come back will be. They might be pushing it back to April 16th. More than likely, the way things are going as far as the outbreak and it escalating, we might be back more towards May. When? Once again, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Don't go around saying, oh, Mr. Belanti said we're going to be back by May. No, that's not what I'm saying. More than likely, they're going to push it back and push it back. You know, They want to be safe with this, and we want all of us and all of you guys to be safe as well. Uh, Chromebooks. The, the school is currently handing out Chromebooks. If you need a Chromebook or device at home, you don't have a computer, this is an opportunity to get one. Contact the school. There should be an administrator there every day this week and potentially next week, of course. Um, but they are handing out Chromebooks. So if you need one, please go grab one. This is for those students who do not have a device. Maybe you might have a phone and that's becoming difficult for you to go online and complete your work. If you need a Chromebook, contact the school. They'll try their best to get you one. Next point, AP exams. When are those going to take place? The AP board has sent out a variety of emails. Uh, they've talked about two date or two periods of the AP exams. Maybe one might be earlier, one might be later. We don't know. I don't know until the school tells me exactly when they want the AP uh, exams to be issued. It's probably going to be a 45-minute multiple choice as well as some sort of long essay or essay question. I don't know if it's going to be a DBQ. It might be. It might not be. It might be a short answer. There's a lot of questions that we have with very few answers. The AP board is scrambling right now 
to figure out the exams. They're working on those and then trying to figure out a date that they can issue those exams. If the exam dates are early, what we'll do is we will review. Whenever we get that information, we'll review from whatever the point is that I get the information to when the date is. The exam is supposed to be just from the first seven units of AP Euro, which means it does not cover this exam that you will be taking this year, would not cover World War I, World War II, or our next unit on the Cold War and modern Europe. It would only go up to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, once again, don't know exactly when that's going to be. If, if the date for the exams is later, what we'll do is we'll continue because the AP board still wants you guys to learn about the Cold War for credit for the class. Um, we will continue learning about the Cold War in the next unit, and then eventually uh, we will take some study time and take the test if the dates are later. We'll take the test later. Uh, our last unit, our last unit is on the Cold War and modern Europe. Um, I, I don't have a way of getting you guys the packets, so what we're going to do here probably more than likely is chunk it, just like we've been doing with the work on Google Classwork. We'll chunk the sections that I do have, and we'll get those out to you hopefully in a timely manner. Maybe we can um, expedite the process in what would have been three weeks of studying the Cold War. We might chop it down to two weeks and see if we could focus more on review for our exam. All right. If you do have any questions, please feel free to contact me at any time regarding any of these points or anything dealing with our class. All right. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Right, so for today, we are going to be looking at the Holocaust. Hopefully, you guys have accessed the PowerPoint that goes along with this. It should say, the opening slide should say the Holocaust background information. I want you guys to take a look at the second slide. You're going to have a list of true or false questions here. If we were in class, we probably would have done this as a, a little warm-up to see what you guys know. But let's go through each, of, each one of these and see what you guys know as far as these being true or false statements about the Holocaust. So number one, the Holocaust is the first time in history that Jews have been persecuted. True or false? What do you think about that? That is going to be false. This is not the first time that Jews have been persecuted. Even in our class, we've talked about it. I think the last time we talked about Jews being targets was during the Russian pogroms in the 1880s and 1890s under Alexander III and Nicholas II. So this is definitely not the first time the Jews have been persecuted. Number two, only Jews were victims of the time period known as the Holocaust. What do you think about that? That is False. No, not just Jews. I mean, you might have some background information from other classes, maybe even Mr. Gotz's English class. Not only Jews, but Slavs, uh, homosexuals, Roma, um, Jehovah Witnesses, Catholic priests, for example, and nuns who stood against the Nazi regime were victims of the Holocaust. Number three, the Nazis took political power through a bloody overthrow of the state. Now, you hopefully have. You know, you know information on this because you should have read the section on Hitler and the rise to power. What do you think? That is false. The Nazis did not take over political power through an overthrow of the state, a bloody overthrow of the state. Remember that Hitler was offered the position of Reich's chancellor if he was to give his voting voting percentage percentage, excuse me, to the president um, of Germany, Paul von Hindenburg. If they were to make fifty one percent, then the conservatives could take over power. And that's exactly how Hitler got in through the front door. Right? He was offered power. Number four, the Nazis perpetrated the crimes of the Holocaust by themselves. So meaning that only the Nazis are responsible for the Holocaust. 
What do you think? That is false. Uh, not just the Nazis, but you have different groups, including the Italian fascists. Um, you have the Ustasi in Croatia, the Arrow Cross in Hungary. You have different uh, right-wing extremist fascist style of governments throughout Europe that assisted um, in helping the Jews, uh, excuse me, the Nazis round up Jews, political prisoners, um, prisoners of war in order to be handed over to the Nazis and eventually eradicated. Number five, Jews did nothing to save themselves from Nazi oppression and terror. That oftentimes is one that's cited quite often as a, um, as an indication against the Jews. They did nothing to save themselves. What do you guys think? That is false. No, Jews did do things to, uh, to survive, and that's the key word, survival. If the Nazis, if the Nazi ideology, in part, is the extermination of all Jewish peoples, then the one way that you're going to make sure that doesn't happen is by surviving. If the, if the, if the eradication of Jews is the final uh, solution, and that is the final solution for the Nazis to eradicate and destroy and kill off all the Jews, simply surviving, living past that date that the Nazis have, um, have fallen, have crumbled, is enough to say that you have saved yourself from the oppression and the terror. Number six, six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. What do you think? That is true. Yes, six million Jews, about 5.8 million. Usually they rounded up to 6 million Jews were victims of the Holocaust. All right, if we look to the next slide, it's going to say major concepts and questions. So what's the history of pre-Holocaust anti-Semitism in Europe? How did the Nazis come to power? And who were the victims of the Nazis? And why were they victimized? All right, so let's take a look at the pre-Holocaust European history on the next slide. If you look back at the creation of Christianity as far as the European perspective, um, if you go back to biblical times, um, because the main crowd at the crucifixion were Jews, and Jews were the ones that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, when Jesus was on trial next to Pontius Pilate. Um, let's say if you guys are religiously inclined, you might know the story, but uh, Jesus has, has been arrested. Um, he is put on trial. And Pontius Pilate is offering the crowd that is in front of him during his trial if they want to release Jesus or they want to release a second man whose name is Barabbas. Barabbas was a, a murderer, a thief, a child killer. Um, and the crowd chants for Barabbas that they want Barabbas to be freed. And Pontius Pilate then says, well, what do I do with Jesus? And the crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. When the Christian church, the early Christian church, took that story, they propagandized it. And they used that story to create an us versus them mentality, us majority Christians <clears throat> against them minority Jews. And this happens oftentimes within states, uh, oftentimes within religious groups. If there is a minority that can be easily scapegoated and picked upon, uh, almost like a bully, for example, uh, if everybody's doing it, it, it empowers the bully. And of course, it deprives the victims, the minority groups. So the term Christ killer or Christ killers, is derived from the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And like I said, the Christians have taken that and they use that for an us versus them mentality. My, my mom, who was born in 1950, um, this is, of course, after World War II. World War II ends in 1945. She remembers nuns in Sicily when she was about four or five years old 
still telling you know people that the Jews were the ones that killed Jesus. They are the uh, anti-Christians of Europe, and you need to be aware of them. This is, of course, after six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, as if the, the mentality had not changed even then. Uh, Middle Ages Jews were thought to have spread the Black Death. Hopefully you guys uh, read or remember reading about that in Charles L. Mee's uh, how the uh, how a, a plague or disease laid low the populations of Europe. That was one of the first readings we had at the beginning of the year. Um, Jews were thought to have poisoned the wells. Um, Jews were taken. Some of them were burnt. Some of them were pulled in, uh, placed into walled ghetto areas and secluded. Uh, the main kicker here is that Jews are dying at exactly the same rate as other Europeans. So it kind of shows us, of course, that Jews are not responsible for that. Renaissance Italy, Jews were placed in ghettos and forced to wear identifying symbols. There's an old adage about history that there's nothing new under the sun. So if we think about the Nazis placing the Star of David or the Shield of David upon Jewish people to try to um, oust out them to the community to say everybody knows that you are, are Jewish, um, that's nothing new. This is something that has taken place for quite a while in trying to have the Jews wear something identifying them as being different. It makes it easy for others to target them. In the 15th and 19th centuries, Jews were victims of pogroms, government-sponsored violence in Russia, France, Germany, Spain, Austria, and Prussia. So all the way through to the period that we're looking at in the 20th century, Jews have been the victims of government inciting violence against the Jews. If you continue on to the next slide, here we have pre-Holocaust European history, Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther on Jews and their lies, he advocated harsh punishment and persecution of the Jews. Uh, he advocated their synagogues and their schools be set on fire, their prayer books be destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes raised, property and money confiscated. This is not something that is just popping in through history here and there. This is something that is oftentimes seen as rooted deep, deeply rooted in European history, in European culture, the view of being anti-Semitic. Continuing on to the next slide, there's a picture of Wilhelm Marr. Wilhelm Marr published the book, The Way to Victory uh, of German Germanism over Judaism in 1879. He was a vicious anti-Semite. He established a League of Anti-Semites to remove Jews from, from Germany. Uh, interesting about Wilhelm Marr is that he is one of the guys who talks about the, the Germans being a super race and uh, the Jews being the uh, Undermenschen or the uh, under uh, under uh, men or uh, inferiors. The Germans are the Ubermenschen and the Jews are the Undermenschen. So the upper and the lowers, the superior and the inferiors. Something that, of course, was is not new when you look at uh, Adolf Hitler and his idea that the Nazis come from some sort of Aryan race and they're the Superman of these Ubermenschen. Well, that was actually Wilhelm Marr and even from before Wilhelm Marr. Uh, the next slide just shows you kind of the propaganda that was used during the time period. Now, here we have a Jewish man who has a pig over his head. And it looks like this kind of demonic man is extending his hands over the world. And, of course, you notice the way his hands are, are, are drawn. That makes it look uh, some sort of talons or animalistic as he's trying to grab for the world. I think that's France there in the middle. Um Continuing on, um, here we have the election, legislative elections of 1889, and a song that goes along with it, trying to show that, that the candidate, uh, Villeneuve, is a candidate that is an anti-Semite candidate. And so if you perhaps vote for him, you will vote for anti-Semitism in general. 
The next picture, you're going to see a family of Jews that have arrived on what seems to be this picturesque landscape, either in Germany or in Austria. And it says Judans here are forbidden. And so while people are fishing and people are playing, the Jews are casted out. They're not to be accepted like the rest. And then a couple other propaganda posters that you have here. The one on the left trying to show a Jewish man uh, or Jewish animal on one eyeball. Very difficult to see. But on one eyeball, you have a money sign trying to state that the Jews are, um, are money hungry. And on the other eye, you have the hammer and the sickle, the symbols of Soviet Union. So they are communist and money hungry, which doesn't make any sense. That itself is a contradiction. If communists want to take away money from the rich and give it to everybody, but yet on the other eyeball, they're all about money and greed, that does not make a, any, any sense. And this, this um, um, you know, insect of sorts, of course, is looking over the continent of Europe, perhaps trying to sneak in or come into Europe. And then the other man, I mean, this is really the, the way that he is drawn. It might look like some sort of biblical character, perhaps Moses, but the over-dramatization of the facial features um, trying to show the Jews is almost being non-human. And we've, hopefully you guys have read this about the Nazis coming to, uh, to power. If you guys go to the next slide. On January 30th of 1933, the Nazis were given political power by Paul von Hindenburg, who was the president of Germany. Right? In Germany, you had president, and then you had chancellor. The president was more of the, the symbol who kind of waved to people. The chancellor was the head of government. And so because the, the conservative party of Paul von Hindenburg lacked the percentage, voting percentage necessary to arrive to at least 51% of the vote to win the election, Paul von Hindenburg and his advisors believed that if they offered Hitler the position of chancellor in the new conservative government, that Hitler would give up his, I think at the time it was something like 18, 19%, whatever percentage votes the Nazis had acquired in the last voting cycle in 32, 32, 33. And that would give the conservatives ample amount of percentage, over 51% to win. And this is this is Hitler's way in. Um, he's given the position of Reich's chancellor and moves himself into the government. If you notice, just one month later, February 27, 1933, the German parliament, the Reichstag is burnt down. The Nazi party blames the communists. Um, they go around inciting this idea that the communists are attempting to overthrow the state. And if they are, we need to give full power and full rights to Hitler. And the very next day, Hindenburg grants the Nazis emergency powers. All civil liberties are suspended. On March 22nd, the first concentration camp, Dachau, is established outside of Munich. The Nazis are moving fast. Uh, the concentration camp of Dachau is not a death camp. It is not Auschwitz. It is not Treblinka. It's not Sobibor. It's not Medank. Uh, this is specifically a camp for political prisoners. If the Nazis are going to come to power, they're going to do so by eliminating their opposition, their political opposition first. So the only party eventually that's going to be allowed is, is the Nazi party. If you're a communist, if you're a libertarian, if you're a potential rival conservative, they will eliminate you, throw you in a camp, potentially work you to death or kill you while you're at the camp. On March 23rd, 1933, German parliament passes the Enabling Act. Hitler can act without parliament's consent and Germany becomes officially a dictatorship at that point. So at the Enabling Act, as members of parliament who now could no longer go to the Reichstag because the Reichstag was burnt down, were going through their new voting hall. And as they were walking up the steps, they were met with SA 
or Sturmabteilung or stormtroopers, Nazi stormtroopers that were walking out and finding these men and walking up to them and saying, hey, I, I know you, you're a member of the Reichstag. And I know that you're married and you have children. If you don't vote for Hitler, if you don't vote for the Enabling Act, something's going to happen to your children and threatening them. Um, and while the vote was going on, you had the same SA guards that were walking up and down the voting hall saying Hitler or blood, vote for Hitler or blood. Um, now, what does that mean? Hitler or we will contribute blood or Hitler, if you don't vote for Hitler, blood will happen because the communists will come to power, whatever the case might be. But when the vote was issued, 444 men voted yes, and I believe something like 90 voted no for that. So overwhelming majority, whether it was through coercion, whether it was, whether it was through threats, decided that Hitler should be given uh, power in the Enabling Act. If you turn to the next slide, in 1935, the German government issues a decree of the Reich's Reich citizenship laws and the laws for the persecution of German blood and honor. These are really known as the Nuremberg race laws. They made Jews instantly into second-class citizens. They prohibited intermarriage and sexual relations between Jews and Germanic peoples. It also established the idea that any sex that was had in Germany had to be between a man and a woman for the theory of procreation. All right? That if a man and a man had sex, they could not procreate. If a woman and a woman had sex, they could not procreate. And this is what you have when you're targeting homosexuals in Nazi Germany. It's not necessarily that you're targeting them because they're gay. You're targeting them because they're breaking what the sex law is stating. That law, uh, sex between a uh, two people must have the possibility of creating a child. So if it's men or women having sex together, then... Um, or men amongst men or women amongst women, that's not going to procreate. So it has to be, to be between men and women. Uh, later, this was going to be applied to, uh, to gypsies and uh, Afro-Germans as well, the Nuremberg Laws. Uh, the next slide you're going to see it shows a variety of triangles as well as the shield or star of David and showing you where these symbols were placed upon the political prisoners or the people who were thrown in camps. So usually we know that Jews were wearing the Star of David. But what happens if you had a Jew who was a political prisoner, or you had a Jew who was homosexual, or Polish and being a political prisoner, or you had Roma who was mentally disabled? And so what you have here is the collage of diverse colors for each of these people. So the first one that you might see, which is kind of in that red or orange color on the left-hand side, those are for political prisoners. The green would be for Roma Poles would be in blue, Jehovah Witnesses in purple. The physically or mentally disabled would be in that kind of light pink, I guess, or the pink. And then eventually you had uh, homosexuals in black and Jews in, I guess, that might be a brown color of, of sorts. Uh, and then, of course, it, it you might change. If you notice at the very bottom, if it was a P, you might have pole. If it was a T, it might be for people from Czechoslovakia. And so what you were able here to do is to try to put all of these together to try to make up who the people were that were in the, in the camps themselves. You know, if you were at Dachau, that was mostly political prisoners. But if they knew that you were a political prisoner and a Jew, then they would combine the two symbols together to make you uh, or to show off exactly who you were for the guards. Right. Your, your name wasn't important, but the symbol that you wore on your fatigues, that was important. Um, who were the victims? Um, so let's go through the, the victims themselves. So political prisoners, uh, the Nazis sought to create what is known as Volksgemeinschaft, 
or people community. I think we talked about that a long time ago when we were looking at romanticism. Um, this could not ex- um, be accomplished if there were divisions politically and racially within Germany. So Volksgemeinschaft means people community, that the people, the Volk, the German Volk, the German people had to be one group. And if they had multitudes of diversity in them, then they could not create the Gemeinschaft, the Volksgemeinschaft. The Nazis targeted communists, social democrats, democrats to try to remove them from their uh, political opposition. The democrat ideology of individuality was stamped out. Right? The liberalist uh, agenda was stamped out. The Nazis insisted that the individual had only value uh, when he or her membership added to the collective racial community. So to stand out and be yourself is not important. When you are yourself and you contribute to your community, that is when individuality is best in the eyes of the Nazi uh, ideology. February of March of 1933, the Nazis started eliminating individual freedoms. They outlawed all rival political parties. So political prisoners, the next um, um, slide. Many were arrested and relocated to concentration camps such as Dachau, and laborers were deliberately undernourished, mistreated in a way that they would be annihilated by work. The idea was that these people were going to work until they died. That's not to say that places like Dachau did not have showers, that they did not have the crematorium. They did, but the majority of people who were at Dachau are going to end up dying because of labor or um, being beaten or being shot. The next slide, we have the Roma or Gypsies. Uh, they were targeted as a uh, for racial grounds as being inferior uh, following along the, the steps of Jewish parallels. So if the Jews are undermensch, uh, then the Roma, the gypsies are going to be uh, undermensch as well. They were deemed to be work shy, lazy, and asocial because they did not contribute to the majority group of the Volk, the German Volk. They were an asocial group. They backed away from society. It was another reason why they were deemed to be an outcast or outsiders. And about 220,000 Roma or gypsies are going to be killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust period. The next group of victims are Poles and Slavs. The Nazis viewed Poles and Slavs or other Slavic peoples as being racially inferior and slated them for subjugation and slavery, forced labor, and eventual annihilation. The Poles were considered to be ideologically dangerous. Um, Poles had a great amount of intelligentsia amongst them, intellectuals, but they were also Catholics. You have a Polish enclave surrounded by Lutheranism for the most part in that area. The Poles, remember if you guys remember well, one of the reasons why the Poles did not want Lutheranism because was because that Lutheranism began in Germany and the Poles were very viciously anti-German. The Germans were viciously anti-Pole. But Catholicism, many Catholic priests, not all, but many Catholic priests spoke out against the Nazis and the Nazi regime in Germany. And the Catholics in Poland probably were going to be doing the same or maybe might be doing the same. So seeing that they're not us from the German perspective, they're not us, would be a reason to eliminate them. Hundreds of thousands of them were imprisoned in concentration camps, and we're looking at numbers about 1.9 million non-Jewish Polish civilians were killed during World War II at the hands of the Nazis. Uh, The next image that you see is from a a death march. Um, This is taken from the window of a Polish house as Jews and members of concentration camps are being walked out of ghettos uh, sometimes these pictures are showing Jews that are, and, and Poles that are being walked out of, uh, of their cities. 
towards concentration camps, towards death camps. It depends on what time period the pictures are going to be taken. Later in the war, their death marches all the way back into Germany. Victims, Jehovah Witnesses. The Nazis targeted Jehovah Witnesses because, following reasons, one, they were unwilling to accept the authority of the state. This is a religious policy on, on their end. They refused to give the Nazis salute. They are international connections, right? Jehovah Witnesses are more connected with their people across borders than they are within the state. They were strongly opposed to war. In April 1st of 1935, the Reichs and the Prussian Minister of the Interior ordered a responsible local officials to dissolve the Watchtower Society. So in 35, Jehovah Witnesses are now no longer um, going to be able to have their society to exist in Germany. About 2,000 to 3,000 were killed during World War II. Now, you might ask yourself the questions, you know, well, why, why are they being targeted specifically for, for death? First of all, they're a very small minority group. But once again, anybody who does not fall in line with what the Nazis are preaching could be potentially killed. Right? So there's, there's that to, to think of. You stand um, against the Nazis, there's a possibility that you might be eradicated. Victims, physically and mentally disabled. So euthanasia programs was the Nazi's first program for mass murder and represented a a rehearsal for Nazi Germany and subsequent genocidal policies. So euthanasia programs to eliminate uh, children was eventually then um, the first little dress rehearsal for what the Nazis are going to do later on with the Jews. The T4 program, uh, Nazis encouraged parents... um, parents of children to admit their young children into clinics. And then those clinics were really killing wards. And uh, oftentimes through uh, medication or by starvation, they would kill the children uh, ages 17 and younger uh, and under about 5,000 of them are going to die because of the T4 program. And then phase two in 1942, the Nazis resumed the killing with the use of local authorities a lot of what is happening because of the T4 program is not outside of Germany. It's actually in Germany itself. And there are cases where Germans can see the bodies of, of the incinerator, incinerators that are actually bellowing out smoke and ash of bodies of people within those clinics in Germany. And so the Germans might not be knowing what's happening outside of their country, what's happening in concentration camps like Auschwitz. They might hear potential uh, information about it through people saying, hey, you know, there's something evil, something sinister going on. But if it's not in their backyard, they don't know it's taking place. And so a lot of people would be dismissive about it. Historians estimate about 2,000, 200,000 individuals are going to lose their life because of the euthanasia program. Uh, Pictures that you see here are uh, pictures of a young child having some sort of disability and then the uh, other one, what it says in Germany, I'm not too sure, but these might be people who have mental uh, disabilities that are being targeted for propaganda. The next group being homosexuals. Uh, the Nazis proposed a, a moral crusade against the vice um, of homosexuality in Germany. And uh, they believed that homosexuals were weak. They couldn't fight for Germany. Uh, they were unlikely to produce any children and increase the German birth rate, which of course meant that they would be breaking their, uh, their sexual laws, and the Nazis saw this as a sickness. They designed policies to cure homosexuality through humiliation, hard work, medical experimentation, uh, mutilation, even death, and it yielded absolutely no scientific knowledge as far as their attempt to cure uh, the Germany of homosexuality.
The next image that you see are pictures of some of the men and women who were homosexuals that were rounded up. And the imagery that you see here, the two pictures are of members of Auschwitz. So every person that came in that was not killed outright was end up giving a number. And you can see underneath the first picture of the men who have the, the side shot. It says the term Auschwitz on it. And then the picture in the middle to show, uh, I believe, two lesbian women is at a dance hall. Um, the, the Weimar Republic, the republic that came before the Nazis, the Nazis used that government as a target to say that homosexuality was rampant, was increasing during that time period, that the liberalization of German society allowed people to choose what they wanted and allowed illnesses and sicknesses, according to the, uh, the Nazis, of homosexuality to progress. Continuing on, next group, victims being the Jews. Uh, Jews were alone considered the primary target of the Nazis, but yet they made up just 1% of the total German population, and they were blamed for every difficulty that the Nazis and the German peoples had to, uh, had to deal with. They were blamed for the loss of World War I. They were blamed for the arrival of democracy. They were blamed for liberalism. They were blamed for communism. They were blamed for being greedy. You name it. Whatever problems the German people were dealing with, oftentimes the Nazis used it. And it's not just the Nazis. I mean, other political groups throughout Europe are going to be targeting, of course, the minority groups to try to scapegoat them. All the issues, all the problems are going to be problems dealing with the Jews. The Jews are the ones responsible for it. The Nazis first used propaganda and then other legislation to target the Jews in Germany as being the others. And eventually, through the founding of the camps and the use of deportation and ghettos and relocation, all the way through to the final solution, resulted in the Nazis attempting to kill all of the European Jewry. About 6 million Jews were killed and about 4 million survived. All right, so let's take a, a look at genocide versus survival. All right. So one thing to note here, as we get down to the slide that says genocide defined, there was no terminology for genocide or even the Holocaust by the time the Holocaust ended in 1945. The term genocide was eventually created during the Nuremberg trials in 1945 and 46 to give some sort of term to the crime that the Nazis had committed. At that point, it was the Nazis were found guilty of crimes against humanity. But genocide, C-I-D-E, is to kill. If you think of the terminology like suicide or homicide, insecticide, the C-I-D-E is to kill. And whatever the terminology is added before that, geno or genealogy or a line of people or insects or insecticide or sua, yourself, suicide, self-murder. Here we are under international law defining that genocide has to be a systematic, that is the key word here, a systematic um, killing of an entire people. If you cannot show that there was a system in place to eliminate a people, oftentimes that's where you have groups that bicker amongst um, uh, with others saying, well, is it truly a genocide or is it mass murder? If you're looking at the uh, Native Americans, did the American government have in place a system to eliminate Native Americans that you can say is genocide? Or you might say genocide-like things have occurred. Um, if there is law, if there is something in place to say that the U.S. government tended, wanted to, tried to eliminate their people or uh, Native Americans through some sort of legislation or some sort of system, then you can attach the word genocide to it. If not, then you oftentimes have groups that will bicker back and forth with one another. The arrival of genocide, once the 
<clears throat> if you guys are on the next slide for where it says number one, ghettos. The first thing that the Nazis attempted to do in creating a genocide, in creating the Holocaust and eliminating the Jews was not to kill them outright by throwing them in concentration camps or in death camps like Auschwitz and Treblinka, um, putting them into showers, gassing them, and then incinerating their bodies. The first thing that they did, the first major step to the elimination of the Jewish people was actually through ghettos. Uh, the ghettos were mostly found in Poland, but just not solely in Poland, were these walled off areas where Jews were forced to live. So they were taken, let's say, from France or Germany or Italy or wherever in Europe. They were carted to these ghettos and established in these walled off areas. And the idea of the ghetto was to starve Jews to death. Isolation through starvation. But because so many Jews survived the ghettos, that left the Nazis with another question. Well, they're not dying. The Jews are not dying fast enough. What can we do to increase the level of death? What can we do to augment the, um, the, the death rate? So the next couple of pictures, the next picture you're going to see here is the actual walling off of the ghettos to keep Jews inside and keep Poles and uh, others outside. You know, some of the children, if you go to the next slide, some of the children that ended up within the ghettos showed up without parents because their parents were killed, eliminated, or were gone by the time that the children got there. So these are two children that have no parents and are left begging. Next slide you see as well, a couple of children who do not have parents of their own. And the next slide as well. Um, five types of camps existed within uh, the Nazi uh, Germany and Nazi-controlled Europe, you had labor camps, transit camps, concentration, POW camps, re-education, and then death camps. To say that you went to a camp, whether you're a political prisoner or you're a Jew, does not mean that you went to a death camp. You could have gone to a variety of things. It depended on what you were worth. If you were a well-bodied, able young man and you were Jewish, didn't mean that they were going to send you to Auschwitz right out. It meant that you might go to a labor camp and they might work you to death. Or if you were a prisoner of war, or a German, for example, and you might be sent to an edu a re-education camp where you were beaten and you were re-educated on what that meant to be a good Nazi and then sent back into, um, into existence with the regular German population. You might have gone to a transit camp where they hold you uh, in that camp for a short while before they eventually send you out to uh, another location. Some of the Nazi brutality that took place at camps, this is not just at, in Auschwitz or death camps, this is throughout areas, um, tattoos. Now, only at Auschwitz and Birkenau were Jews given the tattoos. So if you had somebody who said they got a, a tattoo from Dachau, they got a, a tattoo from Bergen-Belsen, that's not true. It's just at Auschwitz too. The Nazis oftentimes would have their prisoners' heads shaved to try to take away their individuality. If you look at yourselves and your other classmates, the way you dress, the way you define yourself, the way you style your hair is all individualism. Well, if they give you fatigues, you all look the same. They shave your head and you all look the same. You break down the individual. This is something that the Nazis were really good at. And so when we start arguing, well, did, did Jews really fight back against the Nazis? One of the counterpoints of that is, well, the Nazis made it very difficult. They broke you down, right? They ruined you as an individual. And they made you start to believe that if you did not go along with what they stated, what they said, that the consequence was going to be death. So if you go along with it, you just do what we tell you to do, everything's going to be fine. But you try to be an individual. You try to stand out in the crowd, there's going to be punishment for that. Prisoners, for example, were uh, uh, killed in clear view at Dachau. They used to have a group of political prisoners that would line up with their heels on, on concrete slabs, but their heels 
would be right next to where the grass started next to a barbed wire fence, um, electric fence. And they would line up the political prisoners and the Nazis would go and they would shove. Sometimes they would push the political prisoner on their chest. The idea was if you could get the political prisoner to step on the grass, the Nazis would take out a handgun and shoot you right in clear view of everybody. Now, it's not necessarily the punishment that is important here. It's what that punishment does visually to everyone else in the camp. Whether it's through a game, whether it's through insolence, whether it's through somebody is trying to go against the Nazis, by killing that person in clear view, it sends a message to everybody else to bow their heads and simply go along with it and don't question. You go along with it, survival might uh, might actually be a possibility. But if you stand out, you try to do something, uh, try to save yourselves, then you know, there's going to be punishment. Sometimes prisoners were tortured near open windows and uh, open doors where others could not see them, but others could hear the terror that was going on. And that psychologically would do a lot of damage for the people listening to that. Of course, the person being tortured, surely. Uh, but each act was to break the spirit, the individuality of the prisoner and create total and utter obedience. Uh, Next slide, you have uh, the concentration camps themselves. You had six large concentration camps that had been established by 1939, Dachau being the first, Sackenhausen, Buchenwald, Flossenburg, Mauthausen, and Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück was specifically for women. These centers in Germany held, tortured, killed political prisoners and undesirables, such as outspoken journalists and communists. These early prison camps were outside the cities, but somewhat removed from the public eye. Um, Dachau, for example, was not too far away from Munich, but it wasn't in Munich proper. You had to go out to the countryside, to the actual city of Dachau. And then once you got to the city of Dachau, it was a little bit outside of that area. But all of them were along train uh, train routes to allow the prisoners of war or political prisoners to be easily transported from uh, one concentration camp to the other. Uh, the next pictures that you see, this is these are pictures from 2006 when I had an opportunity to go to Dachau. So this is just the, the main site placard um, that you see going in there, uh, Dachau Concentration Camp Memorial Site. The next one you see is the gate that says, Abet macht frei, or work will set you free. Uh, this was oftentimes found on many concentration camps, as well as even in Auschwitz, this idea of providing a false hope. that if you go along with it and you work, you do what the Nazis tell you, that freedom is a possibility. And then this other picture is just a far away view of the gate. This is where journalists and outsiders, uh, members of the the Nazi party would come in. You'd have a watchtower right above, um, and that watchtower would give you the okay if you were able to come up to the gate. Um, But only Nazi officials and some journalists were allowed to go in and ask questions through this gate. This is not the gate where the prisoners would come in. That's on a separate part of Dachau. Once you would go in through, let's say, that gate, um, this is the area that you would be processed in. The building that you see is the area where you would get your number, not your tattoo number, but your prisoner number. You get your uh, clothing, and then eventually you would open, you would walk out into this open square. And to the left of this image is where all of the housing was for the political prisoners. The next picture, you're going to see a table. This is one of the torture tables that survived 1945 and the liberation of uh, Dachau. That in that table, if you're going to notice on the foreground, so closest to you, there's a little box. What you're supposed to do is uh, prisoners put their feet and their their ankles into that box area where their feet are underneath that four by four, 
and they are supposed to bend over. So their waist, they bend over, and that would expose the back of their legs, their rear, and of course their back. And then the stick on top of the table was used to whip the back of the legs where the calves were, break potentially where you have the back of your, your thighs, your rear, and then your back. And that table was found next to uh, a prisoner holding cell, which, which had windows that were a lot higher up. And so this is the table that you were broken at, and it was next to that window where political prisoners on the other side of the building uh, could hear. Once again, not see, but could hear the torture that was going on. The next image you're going to see are of posts that are lacking. There you're going to see one, two, three uh, areas that um, this is where a beam or a bar, you'll see the next image, was placed. And if you go to the next image, you'll see a, a wooden bar that had hooks on it. Some of the political prisoners who were punished, they would have their arms tied behind them. They would be raised up and then hooked. Their arms would be hooked onto those hooks and allowed to, um, to rest there. What would eventually happen is that their shoulders, the arms would get pulled back so much because of the weight of your body that your arms, your shoulders would dislocate and eventually end up turning almost completely around going back. Once again, another way of Nazi terror, Nazi brutality. The next image that you see, this is the killing wall at Dachau. Um, when we went there, we didn't have a possibility. We were with the crowd. I wanted to run up and actually take pictures of the bullet holes themselves. I didn't have an opportunity to. But wherever you see a lot of the lighter color uh, in the middle of the picture, those are all uh, bullet holes. Um, the next image you're going to see is of a what looks to be some sort of prisoner area, uh, a gate in the front, and then a long hallway. This is where the worst offenders were placed, so people who might have committed or attempted to commit assassination attempts on Hitler. I think one of them was put in here, as well as other high-level prisoners to get them away from the general public. The next image that you see are the slabs of concrete. This is where the prisoner camp holding areas were put when the Americans liberated Dachau towards the end of the war, this place was riddled with typhus and typhoid fever. Um, it was a petri dish of disease. And so the homes or the holding areas were eventually torched, completely burnt down to get rid of the disease. And what is left is simply just the slabs of concrete that used to be in the area. There's currently one that was rebuilt after the war as a model to show uh, museum goers what life was like. And I'll show you some pictures of that in a moment. Walking uh, north, going up towards the back end of Dachau is where they had their crematorium and their gas chamber. Here are a couple of the uh, monuments uh, remembering the, uh, the people who lost their lives because of the gas chambers and the crematorium. The next image shows the area where political prisoners would be filed in. Towards the back right-hand side, there's a door there that leads into the showers. What the Nazis would do is they would select two or three political prisoners to gather others and bring them in here and shower them, right? believing that they were going to be showered uh, instead of actually gassed. The next image, you should see a word that says uh, Bausbad, which is an old German word for shower, which is no longer used anymore because the connotation oftentimes is a Nazi and Holocaust connotation that today in Germany, they use the terminology wash closet or WC. And then the head that you see there, the shower head is one of the originals. All the other ones were eliminated, but that is one of the originals that would allow Cyclone B, the gas, to come in um, and kill 
the people who are inside the gas chamber itself. Those three political prisoners that were selected to walk all the other political prisoners in, it was their job to pull out the dead bodies and eventually lead their dead bodies to the first crematorium. That's the next image that you see. You'll see two crematoriums side by side. The, the bodies were stuffed in there one by one and incinerated and made into ash. The next image you're going to see, however, is the second crematorium that was built right next to that first one. And this one is a little bit more revolutionary. And I, I don't mean that in, you know, in a negative way here. I'm, I'm talking about revolutionary in a sinister way where the Nazis started to figure out that it was taking a lot of wood and a lot of energy to burn body by body. So what the Nazis did in the second crematorium is if you notice, there's two chambers. There's one directly under the large hole where the bodies would go into. And then there is another chamber to the right and the left, depending on which um, crematorium you're looking at. Well, what would happen here is you had a revolving, kind of a revolving door, revolving level. You would put one body in, let's say you're going to start burning the bodies, one body in at the top, and you would put wood on the bottom level, directly underneath the large hole. The body would burn because of the wood. And then when the body was halfway done burning, the body would be lowered into that same chamber and a second platform would be raised and you would put the second body on that second platform and the body underneath it, because it was still burning, would start to burn the previous body. And instead of burning wood or stoking the fire to keep the fire hot enough where you're going to burn a body one by one, you were using the previous body to burn the next one and the next one and the next one. And then slowly the bodies from at the very bottom, their ash would be cleared out towards the larger section, the, uh, the, the two outside areas on the right and the left. And uh, one by one, those three political prisoners would get rid of the evidence. And they were told that if they did their job and they did their job correctly, that they would be given food and they'd be taken care of. But of course, that was a lie. Um, if that was the case, if the Nazis gave these political prisoners food and took care of them, at the very end, they would have to be go back out into the general political prisoner population and have to see people that who knows tomorrow they might be next in line and probably those political prisoners would tell the mass majority hey, hey the, the nazis are killing you they're killing us they're going to destroy us all and so instead of allowing those three or four political prisoners back into the general population at the very end of the night they were taken and they were hung from the rafters and then their bodies were the last bodies that were thrown into the incinerator and cremated the next image is of what the barracks would have looked like. Once again, these are more modern um, models that were thrown up to get an idea of what the spacing was like for a political prisoner. If you notice here, you got one, two, three levels, um, what might be maybe a foot and a half of space between each of the levels to say that's your cot or that's your bed. Uh, the area of the toilets, the urinals as well. Remember that Dachau was a political prisoner camp for men, not for, for women. And then this is outside of the main building. Uh, one of the used terms, um, and sometimes it's it's sad that you keep seeing this, is the never again, never again. Right? Some sort of promise of humanity that we will never allow something like the Holocaust to happen. And it, not the Holocaust itself, but other genocides take place. And that leaves the world to say never again, again, and again, and again, and again. Another way that the Nazis killed or attempted to kill or eradicate the Jewish population was through mobile killing squads, what are known as the Einsatzgruppen, before the arrival at the death camps, places like Auschwitz. 
these mobile killing squads would follow the um, the main soldiers and in their invasion through Poland or in their invasion through Russia. And it was their job to gather up as many Jewish people as possible. They might get to a village. They might put out a poster that says, and I'll show you an example of that in a moment. They would put out a poster that says, all Jews are expected to be in this plaza at eight o'clock in the morning. If you are not there and we find you, we will kill you. If you are not Jewish and you are hiding Jewish people, we will kill you. Please gather up all your belongings and meet us here at nine o'clock and we will move you to safer areas or eight o'clock, excuse me. And so looking at that, once again, you know, talking about how the Nazis did a great job of making people believe that they would be okay if they just fall in line and, and did what everyone else did. Um, this is one of the examples, right? You know, you have two options. One, you show up at eight o'clock and potentially you could be saved. They might help you. They might get you to a safer area. Or two, you know that death is there because they tell you, if you don't show up and we find you, you're, we're going to kill you. So option one, who knows? You might survive. Option two is death. So many Jews would show up. They would eventually be let out to some sort of hilly area. A massive ditch would be created and they would have their clothing and their articles removed from them. They would lay down in the ditch or sometimes just on the ground and the Nazis would put a bullet into each one of their heads. Men, women, and children. About 1 to 1.5 million uh, Jews were killed um, by the use of the Einstatzgruppen. The next picture that you see is a picture that's taken by a Nazi soldier uh, giving evidence of what the Einstatzgruppen is doing. Uh, the first soldier that you see there holding up the rifle, he is going to kill this woman who is holding onto her child. And then on the right-hand side, you see what seems to be one or two other individuals that are turning away as the Nazis are going to kill them. I believe there's also there's even a, a, somebody on the ground right next to that standing soldier who has been shot already. And evidence like this will be put into envelopes and sent home into Germany in, in letters. Of course, the Nazis are going to be trying to inspect all the mail, but so much of it is coming in that there's going to be some that do survive, that do get through. And you know, if you're a wife or a grandmother or a mother or father at home or a brother and you see an image like this, what goes through your mind? Are you saying something like, oh, they must have done something uh, horrible and that's why they, these people are being punished? Or do they just say, ah, it's war. That happens. This is war. You know, People are going to get killed. That's just the, the tragedy of war. But evidence does get through. The next image you see is of a truck. Uh, the Nazis start experimenting with gas through the use of exhaust pipes. Uh, when we get to the actual death facilities like Auschwitz and Treblinka and Sobibor and the massive gas chambers, it's not that we're industrializing death just because. Uh, the Einstatzgruppen was using valuable resources, bullets, during a time of war to kill these individuals one by one by one. Those bullets, wartime, once again, could be used to fire upon uh, the Soviets if the Nazis are going to war against Russia. And so it became expensive and it became too much of a hassle to try to kill one person by one person by one person by one person. So what the Nazis attempted to do was to try to find a way of killing people in mass. And what they did was they took trucks like this, they tarped off the back area of the truck, they took the exhaust pipe and they piped the exhaust pipe into that tarped area. And they realized that if they put 10, 15, 20 people in the back of the truck and they turned on the engine, that eventually the exhaust would suffocate the people and they would die of uh, suffocation. Well, if you took this idea and you multiplied it by a huge gas chamber, you can kill upwards of 100, 200, 300 people 
uh, at one one go and eventually clean out and have the next group go in and kill and kill. And this is where you get the factory of death as far as the gas chambers are concerned. The largest group that was killed by the Einstadtsgruppen through these mobile killing squads took place at Babi Yar in the Ukraine. Anywhere between 70 to 120,000 were killed. Men, women, and children all shot one by one. This is the poster that was placed out in Russian uh, at uh, in Babi Yar, and it says on this date, what seems to be the 29th of September of 1941, you're supposed to show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and if you don't show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, then X, you know, X, Y, and Z will happen to you. You will be shot or you will be killed. The next images, these are all pictures that were found amongst the uh, articles that were taken, suitcases, clothing that were taken. And if you notice, guys, they're, they're kids. They're children just like you, just like the kids that are in our classroom, the kids that you share your time with during lunch, during nutrition, your friends from school, just kids looking for a future and being targeted for what? They're Jewish? They're different? How are they different? They're human beings, for God's sake. Deportation to the East, whenever you read that, as far as deportation, oftentimes that meant resettlement or death. The Nazis tried to cover up the killing through use of certain terminology like resettlement or deportation. A lot of you know Nazi sympathizers today uh, use this as an argument. It does not say we're going to kill them. It says resettlement. How do we know that the Jews just didn't survive? They were placed off somewhere and they became victims of the war. But clever way of trying to mask what's going on is by indicating it as deportation. And so what you see here are Jews being piled up into um, trains. Some of them are cattle cars, the majority of them are cattle cars, but some of them are trains at the very beginning to ship them or deport them towards the east, towards these killing centers. The death camps themselves, uh, the death camps, there were six that were in Poland, Auschwitz, um, Birkenau, Auschwitz number two, Kelno, Belzig, Madank, Sobibor, and Treblinka. There was one in Croatia, one in Latvia, one in Belarus. And all these death camps were created to address the uh, the Jewish question. The Jewish question itself was, we have in mind, if you guys actually go down one more page, you're going to see the house where the Vansi conference took place in 1942. 1942, the, Jew, the, Jew, uh, excuse me, the Nazis have a problem. That problem is called the Jewish question. The Jewish question is, if you guys go to the next slide where it says final solution, the extermination of the Jewish race, a question usually has a solution, right? An answer for it. Well, the question is, we have 11 million Jews that exist in Europe and the Nazis want to kill them. What is the best solution for this problem? And what you have here is the final solution. So remember, whenever you hear the term final solution for the Holocaust, it means specifically the extermination of the Jewish race. How do we get 11 million people to be killed faster, more efficient? And this is where in 42 at the Vansi conference, the man you see there, his name is Heydrich, is going to set up the system of transportation of cattle car transportation from France and Italy and Czechoslovakia and the East and Russia and Poland to these killing centers for the eradication of the Jewish people. The next image that you see are the front gates. Once again, this is not the area at Auschwitz where the prisoners would arrive, but this is the administrative front gate. So if you were a Nazi um, official, you would be walking in through this area, or a dignitary, you'd be walking in through this area. The next image you're you're seeing here 
is the area in which the cattle cars would be brought into Auschwitz, um, the watchtower, and eventually the railway lines. The next image is from the watchtower looking over, and this is where the prisoners, the Jews, would be eventually uh, would come down. Go down the next picture, you're going to see a black and white image. Uh, this image was taken, I believe, in 1943 or 44. This is at the height of the Holocaust. This is where the gas chambers were working constantly, day by day, to eradicate as many people as possible. The people would come down from the uh, the cattle cars. They would be separated. Men and women on uh, men and women would be separated. Usually, the older people and children were the first ones to be sent to the gas chambers. The older people not being able to be worked or being seen as being useless. And same thing with the children. So if you were a child or an older person, more than likely it was instant death for you. For the men and women, they eventually would go up and see the doctor, Dr. Joseph Mengele, the doctor of death. And it was him who would make the determination if you were able-bodied enough, might look at you, might give the okay to say he can work. Perhaps that person, man or woman, could go to the um, Auschwitz one or Auschwitz three. Uh, to uh, be used as labor, and those who did not pass inspection eventually would be would be killed. We had an opportunity to meet a man last year who was a Holocaust survivor. He spoke at Cal High, and he had a chance to actually meet Joseph Mengele. Um, he and his family, it was him, his younger brother, and his sister, and his brother-in-law, who were all shipped to Auschwitz. He was 13 years old at the time, and as he was walking up, and he could hear because they had um, things blaring, uh, loud, loudspeakers blaring in, in Polish and in German. And he heard men uh, on one side, uh, women and children on the other side. And so his younger brother, being eight or nine years old, um, thought himself to be a child. And this Holocaust survivor, uh, being 13, took a moment at the time saying, well, I'm not a child, but I'm not a man, but what direction am I going to go in? And so he thought he was a man, or he made the decision just at that point to step into the man's section. Um, he never saw his brother after that. His brother became a victim. Um, but the survivor went on to uh, to outlast the Holocaust. He survived Auschwitz. He eventually was marched back into Germany as the, the Soviets were coming in closer and closer to Auschwitz. The Nazis give up Auschwitz and move a lot of their uh, Jewish prisoners into Germany, into other camps. And uh, luckily for him, uh, he was able to survive. So was his sister and his brother-in-law. Uh, but he remembers going up to Joseph Mengele, not not knowing, you know, of course, what he knows after. Um, but he was the man who gave the thumbs up to say if that person was going to be killed or not killed. The next image is gonna, you're going to see is the property that was confiscated. This is one of the buildings at Auschwitz that has nothing but clothing on the left-hand side. And in the bags, you see human hair. So once again, the Nazis would shave your head to eliminate your individuality. And that hair was brought back to Germany. It was made into wigs. It was put into furniture uh, for padding. You know, today we have polyfoam, for example, that might pad your um, your cushions or might pad your sofas. Back in the day, you mostly had horse hair. Well, you don't need horse hair anymore. You have human hair here. The next image that you see, you're going to see three pictures. The top left-hand side, those are dentures, golden teeth. Uh, that have been uh, pulled out of the victims. Once the victims had been gassed, their bodies were pulled out, and you had a group known as the Sonderkommando in places like Auschwitz that would be given tools to pull out gold teeth before their bodies were incinerated. 
On the top right-hand side, that is an American soldier that is holding wedding rings from uh, prisoners of Dachau that have been killed or potentially confiscated. And the largest picture there at the bottom are of shoes that have been collected from the victims at, at Auschwitz. Next picture is an image of one of the showers at Auschwitz. And that's on the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side is a Soviet soldier who is opening up the hatch where the Zyklon B would be mixed with the water before the showers were set uh, were turned on. This is a quote that comes from uh, Johannes uh, Kremer, an SS doctor who was there at Auschwitz and heard and witnessed the death. And he is quoted as saying, quote, shouting and screaming of the victim could be heard through the opening. And it was clear that they fought for their lives. When they were removed, if the chamber had been very congested, as often it were, often they were, the victims were found half squatting, their skin colored pink with red and green spots, some foaming at the mouth or bleeding from the ears. You also have Jewish doc, uh, sorry, um, German doctors that would report that as the gas was turned on and people started to realize what was going on, the panic and the screams, but as people were dying, that the doctors outside could hear popping, popping noising, uh, noises that were coming. And the popping was actually from the victim's fingernails. The victims were clawing along the, the, the walls to try to open up the door that they could hear. The doctors could hear fingernails popping one by one uh, as their victims were, were being killed. Disgusting. Uh, the next image is some of the remains that have been taken out from the, the crematorium. And then you can actually see on the next image the rib cage of one of the victims that has been burnt down. Their bones and their remains were taken out of the crematorium. If they had been, you know, in large chunks, they were placed into the next image. The next image is is a bone crusher, and it would crush the bones into a sand. And then the next thing that you see here uh, is the remains. We're we're talking about human remains of potentially hundreds of thousands of people. Um, this is at Auschwitz. Um, once this was redone, this is actually made into a pond area, a memorial pond. Um, with, there's some beautiful flowers that have grown at Auschwitz where the memorial is. And uh, a lot of people believe that those flowers are really you know, getting their nutrients from the dead bodies of the Jews that have been, uh, been placed there. Uh, last part to, uh, to talk a little bit about are the medical experiments that took place. Uh, the Nazis used medical experimentations on their victims to try to come up with solutions for, for war. Yeah, sometimes they were sadistic, believe me, horribly sadistic, but some of them were because of the war effort. Problems were going on in the fronts, on the front lines, uh, fighting against the Russians or fighting against the Americans or fighting in North Africa. So the Nazis were using human experimentation to try to come up with solutions for the war effort. Uh, next picture you're going to see is of jo Joseph Mengele, the, uh, the angel of death. Um, he was renowned, infamously renowned for his experimentation upon twins. Um, at Auschwitz, when twins would come in, he would gain favor by them by telling the children to call him Uncle Joe um, and give them chocolates and give them candies. And eventually he would lay them down on the table and commit horrible, horrible experimentations upon them. He wanted to see if the reactions from one twin twin would be the same for the reaction on the other, if they shared similar DNA. Um, 
on occasions when he had children who had dark eyes, brown eyes, or black eyes, he would take um, blue dye into a syringe and stick the children with the syringe into their eyes and try to push blue dye into their eyes to see if the Nazis could create an Aryan race by changing eye color, changing hair color, making them appear to be less whatever, less Jewish or less whatever, and made into German Aryans. Freezing, the next image you're going to see is from uh, Dachau. Prisoners of war were taken. Uh, the Nazis were, of course, freezing during their campaign in Russia in um, Operation Barbarossa 1 and Operation Barbarossa 2. So the Nazis wanted to figure out if there was a way to take soldiers on the verge of freezing and uh, bring life back into them. And so they would take political prisoners, they would freeze them within an, an inch of, of death, and they would sometimes take a tube they would stick the tube into the mouth of that individual and they would pour boiling hot water into the individual to see if they could resuscitate the body from the inside out. That would burn the esophagus, it would burn the stomach, and of course the uh, political prisoner would die. They would take the tube, stick it up the man's rear to see if they could, once again, internally revive the body through uh, the digestive tract. That burnt, of course, uh, the digestive tract and that individual would die. They then attempted to take the body and place the body in boiling hot water to bring life back from the exterior. That led to massive skin burns. But once again here, the experimentation is being used for military purposes to see if the Nazis can be successful finding a winter campaign against the Russians. Some Nazis were having difficulty in North Africa due to malaria. And so at Dachau, some political prisoners were uh, given malaria, uh, injected with malaria, and then experimentation was done to see if they could cure malaria. The Nazis could cure malaria. At uh, Ravensbrück, you had uh, sulfides that were placed into women's legs, uh, burning agents and poisons. Uh, at Dachau, you had seawater um, that was given to individuals. Sometimes it was, uh, this was to see if a soldier could survive. Let's say their ship was sunk or the submarine was sunk at sea or whatever it was. And they ended up in the, the water. The Nazis ended up in the water. You can't drink salt water, right? Salt water is going to be bad for you. It's only going to dehydrate you even more. But is there a way for the Nazis to drink seawater and survive on the water? That's the only thing you have. So political prisoners were fed nothing but seawater. That would dehydrate them even more and eventually dehydrate them to the verge of, of death. There are stories of uh, people coming in, other political prisoners that are coming in to wash the floors of the cells that have these men that are being used as experiments who are drinking uh, seawater and the soapy water that's thrown on the floor. There are tales of the um, experiment, uh, the people engaging in the experiments experiment that they would drop down and start trying to drink the soapy water because they needed something to sustain them. They were so thirsty. At Ravensbrück, an Auschwitz sterilization took place. This is sterilization of people who might be deemed as mentally or physically disabled. Um, of course, sterilization, you're stopping anybody from having children. That would fall under the line of genocide. If a people cannot procreate and create a next generation, then you're stopping their, uh, their existence in that way. Poison was used at Buchenwald. Uh, incinerary bombs uh, was placed onto the victims at Ravensbrück and Buchenwald. High altitude experiments were took place at Dachau, so they would place uh, political prisoners into um, compression chambers. For those of you that have ever been in pools, if you've ever dived down deep or gone down deep into a pool, all the weight of the water 
is compressing upon you. And the deeper you go, the tighter it feels. Well, what they're doing here in these compression chambers is by adding air and compressing the air in there, which means that your body is slowly being pressed to collapse upon itself. And as it collapses upon itself, um, all liquid, your blood, whatever is going to start to come out. It needs to get out of the system. So slowly but surely, these bodies are compressed to a point where they die. Uh, the last couple of slides here we have for the uh, the survivors. About 4 million European Jews survived the Holocaust. Now, these are some people who were never arrested, who happen to still be in Europe. Like, for example, prisoners, or uh, excuse me, Jews who are in Portugal or in Spain, for example, were not victims, were not sent out. So they survived. Uh, so when we're talking about 4 million, we're talking about Jews of Europe, some who were targeted and some who are not targeted. So 11 million Jews were in Europe. 6 million of them were killed. 4 million survived the Holocaust. Um, after the Holocaust, many are going to decide that Europe is no longer safe. Uh, you know, they should have seen that long time before. And many of them did. Many of them left after World War One. Many of them left even before in the 1800s to get away from a very anti-Semitic Europe. Many are going to decide after the Holocaust to immigrate to the United States. Uh, some are going to find uh, a way out in the Middle East and go and eventually create the nation of Israel. And for many years, it actually wasn't the Nazis or the, the Germans that felt regret and remorse. It was the Jewish people who were left with almost like a survivor's complex. Why did they survive and yet everybody else was killed? Almost as if they were feeling themselves guilty for doing what? For being Jewish? Guilty for, you know, they, they survived? And about in the 1960s, um, Nazis who had survived started to downplay the role of the Holocaust. And this struck a chord, and it should have, of course, struck a chord with many Holocaust survivors. And those Holocaust survivors realized that if they did not speak out and did not tell people about the tragedy of the Holocaust, that given another 20 or 30 years, there might be people that believed that the Holocaust never existed. And so it became one of these weights upon the survivors to go on and tell their stories, relate their stories, uh, write books, try to get out there and disseminate this information that the Holocaust was real, the Holocaust did happen, to make sure that they are not going to allow their family members to die in vain. Do the Nazis act alone in the next slide? No. Um, you have the Arrow Cross Party, the Italian Fascist Party, the Iron Guard of Romania, and the Ustasi of Croatia that all assisted uh, in helping the Nazis to uh, get Jews upon cattle cars and drive them off to places like Auschwitz or other um, death camps or labor camps or work camps or concentration camps. So no, they, they did not act alone. Absolutely not. And the last question, did Jews fight back? Absolutely they did. Remember that survival is the biggest key here for the Jews. If the Nazis, if the Nazi ideology is to eliminate you, to kill you off, to eradicate you, you simply surviving is an act of resistance, is an act that you did fight back. And the fact that 4 million Jews did survive, the fact that people did not die under Nazi tyranny is enough to say that they survived and they fought back. And this is what you guys are going to be looking at for your homework assignment. So on Google Classroom, submit by Friday, you're going to have what we would have done was a gallery walk, uh, an information and gallery walk in class. You're going to be looking at the, I believe there's seven to eight different ways that the Jews did resist and did fight back 
Uh, I think one group is specifically non-Jewish people assisting Jewish people to try to uh, escape uh, or survive the uh, the Holocaust. So you want to go through your information sheets and answer the questions and then submit those questions by Friday. Um, hopefully this is informative. I know oftentimes the Holocaust, you guys have a lot of background information because you've read uh, books uh, from before, maybe middle school, or you might have covered information from uh, night in one of your English classes. Uh, but hopefully this either adds to what you already knew or perhaps gives you maybe some new information on the Holocaust and uh, the treachery of Nazi Germany, as well as um, what took place. And as you'll find out then in the next section, your homework, how the Jews fought back. If you have any questions about this assignment, you have any questions about the Holocaust itself, something that came to mind, please um, email me, send me a message, try to contact me, and I'll try to answer your questions as best as possible. Please do not forget, complete that homework assignment. All other homework assignments that you've yet to do, please get those in. Don't forget, snap pictures of your packets, your current packets that you guys are using, and try to get those email pictures in by Friday. All right. Um, I will have a quiz ready to go on Monday, so look out for that. And I hope to hear from each one of you and hope to see you guys uh, sooner. All right. I'd, I'd rather be in the classroom. I'd rather be working with you guys and seeing each one of you guys in the classroom. All right? I think that's where we thrive best and work best. All right. Stay safe, everybody, and we will contact you and see you next time. Take care.